as another one of my several running projects I'm the city manager uh, Montreal city manager for a, a group called Go Running Tours if you ever want to have a fun running tour of the city of Montreal with either me or Liz in fact because she's rather a good tour guide you can book one through the website of Go Running Tours this in fact has a few similarities with our author today Gavin Boiter who used to take people on trail running tours through London I don't know how you run trails through London but he used to manage to do it however this is where our running similarities kind of end because um, last weekend I ran in the Quebec Mega Trail 50k um, and I managed to finish but I was barely able to walk never mind run at the end whereas he was able to take on a run across Europe covering eight countries and 3,398 kilometers I think I might need some tips So hi and welcome to Running Book Reviews Podcast where we review running books to help you decide if you'd like to read the book for yourself We also hope that listening to us chat about running can help keep you motivated about your particular goals in running and maybe inspire you to try something different or new my name's Alan, and with my co-host Liz, today we're going to talk with author Gavin Boiter about his latest book, Running the Orient. So Running the Orient is the story of Gavin Boiter's 2,300-mile run across Europe with his girlfriend, Aradna, who follows him in their camper van, Roxy. So 2,300 miles is the 3,398 3, kilometers. The Orient Express was a long-distance passenger train service created in 1883. It started in Paris and ended in Istanbul, and along the way stopped in Strasbourg, Munich, Vienna, Budapest, and Bucharest. Gavin's goal was to run the same route and stop at each of the station locations in the corresponding cities. Along the way, Gavin and Aradna don't just have navigation challenges, but also endless chores that come with running and living out of a van and some friction in their relationship also. About the author, so Gavin is a writer, director, and copyright in addition to being a long-distance runner. Gavin has been running since his 30s, and running the Orient is not his first ultra-running adventure. He previously ran from John O'Groats to Land's End, which is the longest straight line across Britain, joining the southwest to the northeast. Gavin's love of writing started very early in grade school when he wrote his first multi-part sci-fi story called Invasion of the Blood Spitters. That sounds interesting. He later completed a philosophy and English degree at Edinburgh University and an, an MA in film and TV drama in Sheffield. So welcome to the podcast, Gavin. Great. Uh, great to be here. So I hope I'm pronouncing all those um, all those places correctly because you know Alan hasn't burst out laughing during my introduction, so it means that I got I think I got it right. <laughs> I, I, in particular, I like to get Liz to pronounce the um, the English the English places. Uh, yeah, I think you did a pretty good job. Um, maybe I should have got you to pronounce all the Hungarian places in the book because <laughs> oh, I have no idea how yeah. half of them are pronounced. Yeah, actually, even in my head, I'm not sure I was pronouncing them right. I kind of like glazed over them. I was like, oh, goodness. And sometimes they sounded a little <laughs> similar. So I guess before we get into that part, um, maybe you can just tell us how you decided on this adventure and how you decided to write the book. Well, yeah, I'd like to say I decided, but it was almost decided for me because um, the genesis for this one came 
when I was meeting, um, no doubt to your readers, to listeners of your podcast, they'll need no introduction, but the, the great Dean Carnazes, who did a, um, a book launch in London, at a, uh, a very large bookstore in the centre of town. So I went along to get his latest book, which was the, uh, the Sparta one. I think I've got it there. Oh, yeah. Stop the Road to Sparta. I wanted to get that signed. And I thought because he inspired me to do my first running adventure, uh, the Johnny Grotz the Land's End one, I would also give him a copy of my book. So um, unfortunately, by the time I got my act together to to get up in the signing queue, I was right at the back. So a very long, it was a very long wait. And Aradna was sitting there on her phone and scheming. And she knew that I wanted to do another long distance run. Uh, and she knew that she would have inevitably to support me in this. Um, so she was sitting there thinking, well, what, 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 would, what would be something that he would love to do that I could cope with? And then she just popped into her head, Europe. And it, she had the thought, Gavin's run the whole length of Britain. Could he cross all of Europe? And then that made her think of the Orient Express. So by the time I got to meet Dean and we exchanged books, a lovely guy, very um, shorter than I imagined, but, you know, very nice chap. Uh, by the time I got through that experience and met my hero and everything, I'd, I got back to my seat and Aradna had already planned my next adventure, effectively. And she said, Gavin, would you like to run across all of Europe? <laughs> I thought... That's a whole continent. That must be enormous. I can't possibly do that. But then she said, no, it's actually, you know, it's not even 4,000 uh, kilometers if you go the route of the Orient Express. Not even 4,000. So, <laughs> yeah. so uh, you know, the more I thought about it, the more exciting it sounded because it does go through these, these big European capitals. Um, it skirts the Alps. It goes over the Carpathian Mountains um, and it's full of history. And I'd never been to any of those places apart. I'd never been to any, despite I've traveled quite a lot around Europe, I'd somehow managed to skip pretty much everywhere in that list apart from France. So this was a chance to see some more of Europe and to have a, an incredible adventure. So yeah, I was on board. And how, how did it become a book? Like, did you know before you left that, that you were going to write about this or or was that sort of something that you ended up thinking of afterwards? For the first thing, my first book, Downhill From Here, I didn't plan to write a book at all for that one. I actually meant, meant to make a film. And hilariously, I'm still finishing that film seven years later because I shot 450 hours on a GoPro with a little gimbal thing. Anyway, that's a whole wow. other story. But um, for this one, I thought, I can't do that. I can't log all this film equipment across Europe. and uh, But I do want to record it. So I'll just, I'll just take notes at the end of every day, take lots of photographs, uh, maybe make the odd voice note, but uh, yeah, maybe I'll get a book out of it. Obviously, I had no idea what was going to happen. Um, with these kind of projects, you you assume you're going to have adventures, but uh, you don't have any idea what shape it's going to take. So yeah, I did I did plan to write something about it, but I didn't really know whether it would be a book or not. I think uh, one of the things that struck me about reading the book was you know how rich it was in terms of the detail and um, the description. So did you did you you review like a lot of that film because you almost feel when you're reading the book like you're, you're kind of there and you're sitting, you know, next to the van and looking out across the field and seeing a lot of detail, some animals or, you know, some vegetation in some detail. Did you review all the film? I, I, I didn't actually film that much. I did have a GoPro with me and I had the, the same little gimbal little pouch I made with this so I could take the camera out, film something and put it back in and keep running. But I didn't use it that often, but I did take a lot of photographs on my iPhone. 
Uh, and I had a separate Garmin satellite uh, tracker. So that was my sort of lifeline because everything went wrong the first on my first adventure because I didn't have anything that I could communicate with support in the mountains. So this time I had that as my lifeline. So I can use my camera. I can actually use my phone as a camera. And, you know, so I took lots of, I did stop and take photographs. This was not supposed to be one of those. It's not Scott Jurek doing the north, you know, doing the, what's it called again? The uh, Appalachian, Appalachian Trail or Appalachian Trail. Yeah. Yeah. I never know how to pronounce that. It's not, I'm never going to beat records. I'm not fast enough. I want, and also there is no record to beat. So I just thought, I'm going to have a, we're going to have a great time. We're going to enjoy it almost like it's a little of hiking. I happen to be running. So I did take a lot of photographs. Uh, also, it was just very vivid. You know, I, I, I hardly used music at all for the whole trip, which I always do when I'm training. I always use music to keep me, you know, on tempo and just to inspire me when I'm running through somewhere I've run a thousand times. But on this occasion, it was so, everything was so vivid. You know, the, you're surrounded by nature because we deliberately took paths that were off the beaten trail. We didn't want to go through anything more than a small village, ideally, apart from the big towns that we had to hit. And we're making it all up as we go along. Um, I'm finding trails and B roads and stuff where there isn't any sort of established runner's route or even hiking route. So it was all very, very vivid. And the end of each day, I also did um, take copious notes before I went to bed. This was actually one of the sources of friction. So yeah. I, very little time to spend together and I'm spending a lot of it taking, you know, finicky little notes about my experiences during the day. But it did mean that, you know, I had a lot of um, very powerful memories stored when it came to writing the book, which I did as soon as I got back. I started immediately. I didn't leave it too long while it was all still vivid. So actually, that was one of the questions I had, because it seemed like um, like you were almost making the route up as you went along. And you had, from what you explained in the book, it seemed like you planned before you went out. So you mm. planned for the day. Uh, but then while you were running, it seemed like you didn't follow what Google was telling you and you would just decide to go a different direction. So, so how much planning actually went into the route before, uh, like before you guys even left? And um, and how come you never listen to Google? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the problem is uh, we did plan meticulously a route, but quite a lot of the time you're using Google Maps and the satellite view. It doesn't really tell you a lot about the terrain through which you're going to run. You can tell, for example, in France, the difference between uh, a beautifully manicured trail and a private road through the state, you know. Some things are labeled on Google Maps as roads that are actually private. You know, they're gate, part of a giant um, chateau. You know, I had to sort of detour on that occasion. Um, and the further you get through Europe, the less reliable maps are. I mean, some of those maps have probably, Google hasn't sent a car around every road in the world. <laughs> you know, they've done yeah. it in the big cities, mostly in the West. As you get to Eastern Europe, you get the impression that Someone in Romania has handed them some maps uh, that may be massively out of date, or in Bulgaria particularly. One, I think I discovered a road that hadn't been a road for at least 60 years. There was trees growing out of it, you know, so that, you know. <laughs> um, so you have to improvise. And once you start diverting from your very meticulously planned out route, the next day you're also going to have to either find your way back to where you were or just think, well, there's no point in taking a massive deviation south and then heading north again, I need to be going east. <laughs> yeah. So 
it, the maps, which I've got a massive folder full of these laminated maps, they were sort of like um, insurance, really, against chaos. But actually, when you're there, uh, it's much better to just, you're in the terrain, you can drive around in the van. Having the van was great, obviously, because we could do some reconnoitering for the next day to see whether something's runnable. So it just made more sense to sort of make it up as we went along. And also because we've got the van, we can sleep wherever I finish or we can find somewhere that's within an easy drive of wherever I finish. You know, you have to have some sort of plan, but I think with these kind of adventure runs where there's no established trail, you're going to have to make a lot of stuff up. I think um, you mentioned the van there, which uh, is really the probably the th number three major character in the story, um, Roxy. Um, as the van was christened. So tell us a bit about Roxy and how did she come about? Yeah, that, that was another weird bit of serendipity because uh, we were we budgeted up various ways of doing it, either staying in like flea bag hotels or camping, which as soon as I mentioned the word camping, I went, no, I'm not, I'm not in a tent for five months, <laughs> not gonna happen. <laughs> And we couldn't afford to do hotels and even the cheapest hotels and stuff for, for, for hundreds of days across Europe. So we just thought a camper van would be sensible. And it just so happened that my sister said, I went up to visit the family at Christmas and my sister said, do you want our mas Do you want our bongo? And I went, well, I've got bongos. I don't, I don't need any more drums. Thank you very much. No, no, it's a car. It's like an eight seater. Mazda, it's got the least, it's got the most geeky name of any vehicle. It's called a Mazda Bongo Friendy. <laughs> it's a Japanese import, eight seater. It's a tiny little thing, but it's no wider than a normal car, but it is obviously longer. But what it has is it has a sort of surreptitious nature when you're, when it's parked up and the roof's down, it has a, a roof that kind of opens up like a big wedge for sleeping, for a sleeping compartment. But when the roof is down, it just looks like a parked grey van. So it isn't like one of those big Winnebago's that you guys have, like in Canada. Uh, it's it's very subtle. You can park it by the side of a, a B road, and as long as you're not, you know, making it obvious that you're staying overnight, you'll get away with it. So we bought this thing. I was skeptical at first. I thought it's not designed to be a camper van. It doesn't have any of the facilities you'd expect. All it has is some seats that can fold down to a kind of flat sleeping compartment. But we went on YouTube. Aradna persuaded me that, uh, again, on YouTube, she, she discovered all these um, people doing camper van conversions. And I'd never even heard of the concept of van life at this point, let alone that it was a massive movement. Uh, so we ripped out all the seats. We borrowed Aradna's parents' drive, massive driveway in uh, southwest London as a kind of work. And, and her, her father's infinite selection of weird tools like a screwdriver that can screw around a corner, that kind of thing. And we basically set about learning how to convert a camper van. And that took about four months. Um, I had to learn carpentry skills that I've never had before. Um, <laughs> I remember getting very excited about the lap joint, which is just basically two bits of wood put together at, uh, across what, uh, perpendicular to one another so that they're in the same plane. But when I discovered that, I was my mind was blown yeah, did you, um, didn't you publish a picture of it or something in the book? <laughs> it looks um, like I'm holding up a crucifix or something. Yeah, but... I'm, getting a, I'm getting a flashback now. Yeah, there's some stuff in the book about the construction. Yeah, it was a big learning curve, but you're basically going to live in this thing for months. And as it happened, part of the deal with Aradna was that if I was, she was going to support me for this big, stressful adventure, 
we would have like a month and a half to come back from Istanbul back home. So we would sort of meander home through some other countries. So it was going to be five months. So if you're going to live in a van for five months, you need some amenities. Now, it's still very basic, but I did manage to put in a cooler box that sort of doubled as a fridge, a sink, water tank, wastewater, and cabinets, and a roll-out bed in the bottom. So we had a choice of sleeping downstairs or upstairs. Technically, it's a two-story house, <laughs> but without a bathroom. So I guess that's how Aradna decided that it was okay. She was she was going to accompany you in this adventure. Yeah, Um it took a bit of persuading that my rather blocky basic design for the furniture was going to be necessary. But I said, no, it's going to be bolted to the floor, bolted to the walls and built to survive anything. And I was vindicated that it still still looks pretty good. Even, you know, all the wear and tear it's had. Do you guys still have that then? Like, do, did you keep it after the adventure was over or? Um... Yeah, yeah, I still have Roxy. Uh, I will, in fact, be driving off to Wales this weekend to use her to do a really <laughs> stupid race, a 24-hour run up Mount Snowdon, because I don't know how to <laughs> how to punish myself enough. <laughs> so, yeah, she'll be my base of operations while I attempt to run up and down this mountain as many times as possible in, in the space of a day. So, yeah, she's she's been through a lot. She's probably been on more, um, I don't know what you call them, in kind of low loaders, like a... Recovery. She's been on the back of more recovery vehicles than I dare to remember. But but she's also been, you know, done a good ten thousand miles in my possession and more. I'm sure. So so you got your you've got your van. You've got your you've got no toilet, but you've got a trowel or two trowels. <laughs> so you're in business. Yeah. Um, how did you budget? How did you know how long this thing was going to take? Because there's sort of an open ended quotient to it. Did you have an open-ended yeah. time period and did you have an open-ended wallet or? No, we had, we had limited resources, but uh, I'd managed to secure, let me get this right. I think I'd managed to secure a sabbatical from work. It wasn't paid, but um, I knew I had a job to go back to. Uh, and also we had some savings. Uh, we, we raised some sort of seed finance. We don't have any sponsors or anything because I'm, you know, I'm not well known enough for that. But also we, we just whittled the budget right down you know saving on absolutely everything i mean the van cost us hardly any money it costs less to buy and build by a substantial margin than it would to, to rent or buy such a thing or get it professionally done hmm. and aradna it does help to have a partner who's a producer <laughs> of, of films and large-scale public events because she's just very good at knowing how much things are going to cost and how long things are going to take so she said it'll take 110 days and it took 112 days. You know? oh, wow. So, it's incredible. Yeah. Which I don't know how she did that. Yeah, because at the beginning of the book somewhere, uh, like I remember reading that you had wanted to work your way up to like 48 kilometers a day, um, but you never actually did that. Uh, <laughs> I don't think. I mean, like, because it sounded like you were doing more around like 35, which is a big deal yeah. when you have, you know, 2,300 miles to run um so so all that that time you you basically thought it was going to take a certain amount of time but aradna knew what it would really take i'm always ridiculously overconfident in my abilities uh i think i just didn't uh factor in the fatigue it's hard to get the calories in and you're still working a lot when you live in a van you're still working you're still moving you're stretching you're 
pulling beds out, you're moving boxes around, you're doing all sorts of stuff. You're not relaxing. And also part of the deal was when we get to Munich and Vienna and amazing cities like that, we're not going to, I'm not just going to lie around morning. We're going to go sightseeing. So I actually probably did about 20,000 steps on the days off. And to be fair, uh, yeah, maybe I could have got up earlier, earlier and started earlier and run longer, but that wasn't part of the deal. That wasn't the whole point of it was to exa- utterly exhaust myself. I wouldn't have been any use to Radna had I been just riven with fatigue every day. So actually, I, worked out, I think I worked out an average of about 20, 21 miles um, over the whole thing. But what that meant is I'd got, I didn't get a single injury, which is weird for me. Because um, on my previous one, where I ran about a marathon a day, I, I was constantly injured. My knees went. I had a big fleshy ridge around my ankle, the John O'Groats end. I was injured all the time. <laughs> like, oh, no. On this one, just dropping it by six miles made it manageable um, somehow. Does that play with your discipline a little bit? I think if I, I was, I'm trying to sort of project myself into your into mm. your um, experience, I'm thinking, okay, so better just knock it down a little bit. Don't want to get injured, need to get through. And then you're getting tired anyway and you're getting exhausted, so... Oh, let's have a couple of days off or let's knock it down a little bit more or... Yeah, I think even if I had had that attitude, Aranda wouldn't have let me because okay. I remember once I was in, we were in France and I told us, told her, you've got to get me out there even when I don't want to run because I need to do... So, you know, we can't have this going forever. Our mug will run out of money and it will just, you know, drive us both mad. So once in France, when it was really cold, really wet, I, I remember I was running... It was so cold and unpleasant that my arms, I started having pain in both my arms, which I never experienced before, like nerve pain, because they were exposed on the same running and they're not covered. And by the time I got to, I, it just got so bad. I had to, I, had to, I think I'd run 15 miles. I had to stop and I had to hide in a bus shelter in this small town where everything was shut. There was no sign of any people there. It looked like a ghost town. And I phoned her out and she arrived like 40 minutes later. She'd been off to filling up the water tanks or doing some other massive, massively important chore. And I just crawled into the roof compartment, lay down and started moaning about how tired I was and how wet and cold. And then I just, this out through this little hole, they have this little hole in the roof where you can pass drinks and things. And I get this little handful of sweets or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it was. Muffin, maybe. You know, I start taking on sugar much needed fuel and then i get a hot cup of tea and and then aradna starts saying things like oh well you know it's very early you could why don't you just do another 10k just you know just just warm up change your clothes you know you'll feel much better when you're out there think how good it will be when you finish you start getting this little slight like voice of conscience in yeah. my head yeah so eventually i go out there i'm very grumpy like no i don't do it <laughs> and I got there and actually it was great. I enjoyed the second part of that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how, but I just somehow really enjoyed it. And it was, yeah. So motivation is weird. Um, it, it comes in fits and starts, especially when you're doing one of these multi-day things. There's not real logic to it. Um, you just have good days and bad days. I did have a thing that I created, which I created a set of gears for myself. So I had like zero, one, two, three, four, and zero is basically walking which I tried not to do. And I did hardly at all, actually, even on hills. I rarely walked uh, apart from the steepest bits of the steepest hills. And first gear was like a jog, but hardly lifting my feet off the ground and not having a bang step. And I found that annoying. So I tried to not do that. 
So I always try to get up to second gear, which is enough of a bounce that it constitutes a decent run, 12 minute miles, nothing very fat, very slow. 10 to 12 minute miles um, was probably what I was averaging for most of it. So it's not, it's not fast running, but um, you can do that for an hour. If you, once your body is used to it, you can do that for days and days and days. I think it definitely, ultimately. So you actually, you just mentioned motivation. And one of the things that seems to demotivate you um, is like just being in a flat, like just a flat road for too long, because uh, there seemed, it seemed like every time um, for, for me, from my perspective, I was like, oh, every time the, the route was really nice, you would be sort of like wishing that it wasn't um, so, so flat or, or straight or long or, or, mm. or, um, or, or well uh, populated, I guess. <laughs> and um, yeah, then you, you'd, you would end up taking some kind of like a little off road that you would see that was like heading to the mountains or something. What is it about the trails and the mountains that motivate you more than the road? Because in some cases, the trails ended up not being much of a trail. Like you, it seemed like you would just, you'd take a trail and it would just um, kind of peter out into not much of anything. And you'd end up in the middle of a field and you'd have to like, you would never turn back. So that was also kind of a funny thing is you would never backtrack. Um, You would just end up going through the field. So I don't know what what uh, what keeps you motivated yeah. in that instance. I, I think it partly comes from growing up in Edinburgh in Scotland and London, and being an adult in London, where there is no straight lines. We don't have grids. You know, all our, all our towns and cities are ancient. We don't have grid systems. Everything's a hill, or uh, and there's lots of green space. And I'm just not used to running along very long flat roads where I can see the horizon like miles away. <laughs> And also, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm not being distracted by uh, lovely trees or butterflies or uh, trying to find a route that, where I won't fall over or crossing a river, if I don't have those distractions, I've got too much time to get into my headspace where I'm just thinking about pain and fatigue and hunger and how long I've got to run today and all those sort of other things. Negative, and it gets into a negative spiral. And I keep thinking, oh. I volunteered for this. I'm doing this because I'm supposed to enjoy it. So I didn't need to come all the way across Europe to run along along to run along a motorway or freeway. So yeah, I took any excuse to get off-road uh, where possible. And there's quite a lot of probably if with a lot more research, it would be possible to find an almost entirely off-road route um, from Paris to Istanbul. But yeah, that's it's a challenge. You are you are gonna have those days where especially in Hungary, the Great Flat Plate, what's it called? The Great Plain is called the Great Plain for a reason. It's just deadly flat and dusty and hot. I guess the other thing would be language. Um, it's okay when you're mm. going across France and Germany because either you know a little bit, if you're English, you know a little bit of those languages, or you can um, you can find somebody who speaks English. But actually, once you get into Eastern Europe, you now you're going into um, very different foreign language country through Slovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria, Romania, places like that. Did you have language difficulties or were you always able to find somebody who spoke enough of what you needed? There's a surprising amount of people who can speak English all over the world, uh, especially in in Europe. And you can convey a lot with hands with hand signals in mind. If, if all you're looking for is some, or somewhere to buy food or somewhere to park, you know, there's we have a lot of uh, nonverbal communication that we don't even realize we're doing half the time. So we did rely on a bit of that. 
Romanian, weirdly enough, is one of the six Romance languages. So it's actually got a lot in common with Italian. So you can kind of understand bits of bits of Romanian. Bulgarian, no, because it's a, Cyr- it's a Cyrillic language. Sort of, where did Bulgarian come from? It's kind of quite like Russian or something. Mm. And it's amazing. You cross a border and it totally changes. Hungarian is baffling. All the words are like a thousand syllables long. I don't know how to pronounce any of it. Oh, like got me into trouble a few times because the place names were like Mag- Magyar Heges and Nagyar Heges. Those pronunciations are completely wrong, but they look very similar. They change by yes. one letter. And if I send Aradna to one village and I'm running in another direction, that's no use. I think I actually read in the I think I actually read in the book that you went to one village where there was another village called exactly the same thing quite nearby. Uh, yeah, I think so. I don't know. Maybe they had an argument one day and split up into two separate villages, but neither of them could agree on who was going to get custody of the name or something like that. So during this adventure, um, Aradna ha- was supposed to have her own little project as well. So it wasn't like just uh, just the run. She yeah. was also uh, going to try and interview some people that you guys met along the way. But with the with the language um, issues, or, or I don't know the the language differences in some of the the Eastern European countries, did she ever did she ever manage to get enough interviews for her project? Uh, it fell a little bit by the wayside, I think. And I think that started making her feel a bit sad that she'd had these creative aspirations that weren't really going to work out. I've got that actually sort of came to a head a little bit in uh, Germany, where she'd been, she'd found this amazing couple. It was like one guy, German guy spoke perfect English and his wife, who was from Thailand and they had a food van together and he was paddleboarding when Aradna spotted him and they made a loose arrangement to meet later on and he, she would interview both of them. And it was about the whole film was going to be about the concept of home. So obviously it's relevant to us. It's relevant to uh, the, that couple and, and particularly the woman from Thailand. So, um, but unfortunately when we got to the van, it was far too late. They'd obviously left and it wasn't going to happen. We couldn't find them. So it wasn't, so it was a bit depressing. So we walked down to this lovely lake. The sun was setting. It was a beautiful fiery sunset. And we're sitting on this bench and I'm trying to reassure Adnan that it's all going to be all right. Don't worry about it. Things, things, will, things will work out. They always do. And just in that moment, this German woman walks from this little cottage and she, she just walks down to the side of this lake, which is very quiet, tiny little village. And she walks, rolls her, takes her shoes and socks off and just walks into the lake and paddles around. And we get talking. And then she invites us to join her and her husband in this little house. And we end up in this weird situation, we're having lovely German food and wine and listening to Hawaiian slack key guitar, which is something she's into having trained as a masser, a masseuse in oh, this Hawaii. Oh, is, this is Cornelia. And we just have this really lovely little, yeah, Cornelia and uh, Winfried. We have this really nice little sort of encounter with this with this couple out of nowhere. And that was also supposed to be part of the plan that we would inevitably meet people along the way. Um, so we're not totally rely on one another in a very strained circumstance so yeah that's definitely a theme in the book is um just taking the opportunity to have those random encounters with people who live in a different part of the world from you and have a different way of living cornelia seemed to have some sort of interesting massage techniques <laughs> yeah. uh, sounded a little I painful i don't quite know where the where the slapping came from but there was <laughs> at one point she 
persuaded me that it was a good idea. She sort of slapped me across the back of the knee nine times because I had a sore knee at the time. And to be fair, it took my mind off the pain that I was having in the front of my knee <laughs> by giving me an additional <laughs> pain in the back of my knee. But and it was so painful. I, I, was, I was like too embarrassed to make a noise, but like, this is really painful. I don't think this should hurt like this. But the next day, no, no knee problems at all. Well, that's interesting. I don't know whether it was like, yeah, it was like she was traumatizing, the, like stretching and flexing the tendons, like I might do with extreme stretching, but doing it for me with a with a hand. The whip. Uh, I, I don't know what kind of crazy German technique this is, but um, you know, a lot of deep tissue massage is very painful. So that's true. Yeah, like the trigger point um, type yeah. of massage is painful. Uh, so. Mm about um aradna so the she was your like one woman crew for most of the trip so you guys did have mm. a few visitors like some friends came to stay with her yeah. for uh, for a few days which actually seemed to be uh really great for her because she'd have some company but w was that planned like that all along or had you guys uh you know maybe wanted to have a few more visitors along the way did you ever think that that uh, that you'd have a bigger crew for the trip, or was that always the, the way it was supposed to be? Well, Roxy's not, well, she's not very big, so it's quite difficult to have someone else there for too long. And also it's very difficult to organize people visiting when you don't know where you're going to be. You know, you can give them, I can give you a rough radius of about 150 miles from from somewhere, but just telling someone where to fly into to in order to get to you, and then they have to somehow fight, figure out a way to, or you have to go and collect them. So the logistics were very difficult. So we did have a couple of planned visitors and David came twice because he enjoyed it. He didn't learn his lesson the first time because uh, we always put them to work. You know, you can't just come and be a bystander. You're going to help out with the cooking and washing and everything else. But yeah, that was that was fun and, and very important, I think. And as I say, we met people along the way and then um, Aradna did get a little break which wasn't entirely voluntary because her grandmother was quite ill. So she had to go home and look after her while her parents were on vacation. Uh, so my dad, who was by then like in his mid to late seventies, had to come over to Romania. <laughs> this is not a man who travels very well. Uh, usually doesn't really leave Scotland hardly. So dad, could you come to the Carpathian mountains, <laughs> you know, Transylvania and uh, support me for two weeks. So that was another, another fun little bonding experience. How did that go? Uh, mixed. Uh, it was fun, but we did have a lot of problems because Roxy decided that she'd had enough uh, in the Carpathian Mountains, quite high above the wildernesses. Uh, it's basically dense forest. It's just like you see in a, you know, in a vampire movie, actually. It's like dense forest, mountains, little goats, uh, and bears, apparently. 6,000 brown bears, although I never oh, saw wow. them. Oh, but we did have a funny incident one night where we we managed to uh, things started going wrong with Roxy, like the roof wasn't wasn't staying up, so we had to prop it up with a stick. And then um, during the night, I'm sleeping up there, and I hear this sort of snuffling, growling sound, and it feels like there's something prowling. My imagination is going crazy. It's like mm. four in the morning, so I think, God, there's a bear, and I'm in a tent on top of a metal box because it's got canvas. This this roof thing has a canvas has canvas sides, so a bear could make short work of that with its claws if it wanted it wanted mm -hmm. a tasty scottish treat <laughs> so um i end up basically lifting up the little trap 
door into the lower compartment, shouting, Dad, I'm coming down. And I basically jump on him, <laughs> thinking I'm going to be attacked by a bear. And it's, it's probably just him snoring, to be honest. So <laughs> the next morning, we find out the battery's flat. And then we have to um, flag people down to get a jump start. And it all goes wrong after that. And eventually, Roxy has to be towed off to a, a local garage. And then, you know, we have to spend five days in five-star hotels instead, which my dad is entirely happy about. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So poor Radna, she didn't get uh, she didn't get that treatment. She didn't she... get the luxury hotel. I mean, no. in Romania, five star hotel will cost you what it would for like a two star hotel in in the UK. So we thought we might as well might as well go for it. Um, but that was weird because getting back, it, it felt wrong. I felt I felt uh, this is not an adventure. I'm sleeping on lovely silk sheets in a palatial apartment. This can't be right. I'm supposed to be suffering. <laughs> And you don't have to, you know, use a trowel to um, um, go to the bathroom. Yes. They have they have facilities. <laughs> oh, so you didn't see any bears, um, just no. as well. Um, we could have given you advice on that, though. We've had um, we've had events where we the compulsory the compulsory equipment includes bear spray. Oh right, okay. Yeah, I should have got some. I never thought of that. I noticed in your book that you actually published the song that you sing to 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 <laughs> vocalize to vocalize uh, so that bears will hear you and not be surprised by yeah. it because of course one of the key things is don't surprise the bear mm. make a noise yeah so i had fun making up little ditties to uh, to sing because i don't really sing i'm too embarrassed usually to sing even to myself but i thought if it's a life or death thing i'll sing but then i could have to make up a song about about bears we used um, uh, we used roxanne by um oh yeah <laughs> by, by the police or whatever we'd sing roxanne yeah. Um, seemed to work we didn't encounter any bears either did we liz no and we also watched plenty of youtube videos so that we knew how to use the bear spray because you know that's the other issue mm. you don't want to like like spray it into the wind because then it comes back in your face instead of yeah, spraying your own eyes <laughs> so then you're trying to see whilst being attacked by a bear yeah you yeah. pepper sprayed yourself and then <laughs> made this just easy game for the bear um, yeah so you didn't see any bears but you did have a lot of encounters with dogs Yes. Uh, yeah, it turns out that Romania, to a lesser extent Hungary and a bit of Turkey, has a sort of feral dog problem, uh, particularly Romania. And I go into quite, I won't bore you with the details of how this happened, but there are historical reasons for it, why there's all these, what were domestic pets um, that are now living as wild packs. And it turns out that if you put, if you set dogs free, they'll eventually just naturally form packs. And this is like a weird pack of like a Labrador, a Spaniel, an Alsatian, <laughs> random collections of dogs. Yeah, well, one of them just decided one of the no. Um, but what they do discriminate against is random people running at them with like in lycra <laughs> through the forest. They don't like it at all. It was scary because you don't. Most dogs are not going to bite you. They just want to bark at you to see you off their territory. But mm -hmm. I'm running through their territory. I have to get to the other side of it. So. Romanians, locals would t tell me, why don't you have a stick? You're in the countryside. You don't have a stick. Like, why do I need a stick? Well, you need a stick to sh brandish at the dogs. Um, and, and the other thing you can do if you're on a road, a bunch of dogs come at you barking. You just bend down and start scooping pebbles up. You don't even need to pick them up because it's sad, sadly, it's, you know, it's, the dogs are obviously used to having stones thrown at them to fend them off. So they just, they think they're going to have stones thrown at them and they run away. But there were some scary moments where I thought, yeah, this time I'm gonna I'm gonna get bitten and have how am I gonna get a tetanus 
you know, mm. our auntie's rabies shot in the middle of the Carpathian Mountains. Mm-hmm. One day I had 12 separate incidents, I think it was. Was it nine incidents with 12 dogs? I can't remember. I was counting and I lost count of the number of dogs that were pursuing me wow. um, at various points. But I like dogs. And, my, and ironically, my parents have a Romanian rescue dog, uh, a oh, dog wow. that was found from a, okay. uh, obtained from a charity that repatriates um, dogs. So and she's lovely. Maya's the sweetest animal you'd ever meet. So I have a lot of sympathy and I wasn't going to, I didn't want to hurt them or anything. I just want to, I just don't want to be, you know, you mauled be by bitten. a pack of animals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It seemed though that like in some areas, the dogs were a bit more tame, like where they would more mm. like try and get food from you, not really, uh, you know, yeah. bark at you and stuff. It, it's almost as if there were some areas where I guess they were better treated. So they were, um, you know, kind of just used to wandering around. They'd see a person and they'd go beg for food that kind of how it went yeah i think the hungrier they get and the more away from a sizable town or village the the more they have to revert to their wolf-like status to survive and you know they 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 just form packs for protection yeah and you did come across a herd of wild boar yeah that was that was that was scary actually because i'd never seen a wild boar or anything else in bulgaria on the same day that i sort of completely lost my way and tried to follow a road that hadn't existed for 60 odd years, had massive bites out of it. It was really amazing. I mean, it looked stunning, this wood, but it was very remote. And I finally get to beyond this end of this road that isn't a road and find a trail again. And I think, right, I'm heading the right direction. I'm going to come out onto an actual proper designated road and rocks. You can come and meet me. But on the way there, I hear this. I, well, I don't think I hear, I think I see them first of all. I see these black shapes. I thought, what are they? Are they cows or something? Like, buffalo or something no they're they're boars they're, they're giant eight or nine feet long or something wow. and big massive shoulders and tusks uh and fortunately on the other side of a little hedgerow that i'm i'm running one way and they're going the other way on like a parallel path or something so they i didn't actually encounter them face to face because that's mm-hmm. that's terrifying and the more i read about wild boar if it's bad enough to meet one of them but six or seven you better get up a tree as quickly as possible, basically. Yeah, I guess you were lucky because they were uh, they were heading somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, they they just eating some walnuts or something, and they're like they were fine. <laughs> they weren't bothered by me, oddly enough. One of the uh, one of the times when you get lost and you should have backtracked, but you didn't, you actually mm-hmm. end up uh, trespassing onto a military base in Turkey. And I, I was yeah. like really scared for you when I was reading that part yeah. because, you know, they had guns and uh, it's a military base in Turkey. It's worse than that uh, because it was actually the day the presidential election, which I didn't realize. We weren't really paying attention to the news because, you know, we've got lots of other things in our minds. Mm-hmm. This was the first day the country had had a supposedly democratic election. Quite how democratic is up to debate. But uh, so, yeah, very tense day in the. Uh, Turkey, and probably not the day you want to run across a fallen down fence into a Turkish military base and encounter two teenagers with with semi-automatic rifles looking the other way. But it worked out, as a lot of my misadventures seem to do. And yeah, I got taken down to the base and put into a little room and had a, a senior officer there sort of interrogating me with his assistant using Google Translate to send messages to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I knew I was safe when I heard the fateful word chai because 
Aradhana is Indian and chai in, in Hindi means tea. So like, well, if they're offering me tea, they're probably not going to hang me upside down and beat my feet with sticks. <laughs> yes. That'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you ended up being okay. But one of the um, so one of the tips you give, um, because you give like mm. tips uh, during during the book mm. after every like couple of chapters or so, and one of the tips you give is actually if you get lost, you should turn back. Um, and seeing as how you had yeah. so many misadventures, you think <laughs> the next time that you plan your adventure, do you think that that you might take your own advice? <laughs> I have tried recently in races where I've gone, or not races, but like um, if I've gone on trail run by myself just for training purposes, and I go the wrong way, I do tend to backtrack. I was faced, I was forced to do that on a hundred mile race actually. Um, I realized that I'd been lost and distracted by the music and I'd run for about 10 minutes down the wrong fork. And I thought, well, there's, there's oh, a race. No. I have to run the route. Yeah. So I learned from being forced to do it on, on races where you, you haven't got a choice um, that it just saves time sometimes. There's no point trying to forge a path when you're only going to save, you know, assuming you can find the right way back to where you're supposed to be, you're only going to save 10, 15 minutes. I don't like doing it. <laughs> I like the adventurous route. I think, I think it's, and I don't, Scottish, it's probably too stubborn. It's a Scottish yeah. nature in you, Gavin, that you would engage in what you describe in the book as a little bit of judicious trespassing. <laughs> yeah, we don't have uh, we don't have uh, trespassing laws in Scotland. We have like the right of access, which is different from English. So we are allowed to climb fences and cross farmland and stuff um, as long as. I guess if a farmer asks you to leave, you probably have to, but we, we have a different attitude to fences. <laughs> <laughs> More brave heart sort of attitude. Um, coming back to Aradna, there's in fact, um, you took a special secret gift with you on the journey with an idea for a special romantic gesture at the end. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Do you, do you want to share that? Or do I want to spoil that for the audience? <laughs> well, no, I think I do spoil it earlier on, don't I? I'll put that chapter in. Well, yes, I had a, I had a yeah, plan. Yeah, you do. Um, you do mention it at the beginning. Right at the um, beginning. That, yeah. that, you, that you had this plan and, um, you know, you hide the, the gift in a secret location. Yes. In there. Uh, so my theory was that if you can endure five months together in a tiny van having an adventure like this, they probably met the person you should spend the rest of your life with. This is my thinking <laughs> at the time. So I thought, well, maybe it's that time. Maybe I should propose. So I I actually had to have a whole secret plan. During our busiest period of planning the trip, I was sneaking away to meet with a, a goldsmith to design and create this ring. So it probably seemed like I was having an affair because I kept making up <laughs> these like, random excuses for where I was for several hours. And ironically, I was making this ring, which I had to hide it somewhere. So I hid it in my wash bag. And then I thought, well, I'm just going to have to make sure she never looks in there. So a few times I had to snatch it off her, which probably baffled her. Why is she being so possessive about his wash bag? <laughs> There's nowhere to hide things in a, in a tiny vehicle like that. But yeah, so that was the plan. And uh, it paid off rather nicely with a rooftop proposal. <laughs> How can I put this? I don't want to spoil the, uh, the ending of the book. I won't spoil the ending of the book. I'll let you, yeah. readers can read what happens it's next, how it plays out. a very out. good reason why people listening to this podcast should get the book and read it themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm. and how long had you, you two been together before you went on this adventure? 
I think it was like about three years or something. So we. So you knew each other already pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, we we'd lived together. We just lived together in a nice house with lots of rooms <laughs> and properly functional bathrooms. In fact, they're uh, almost bad as you and your partner, Liz. Hmm? <laughs> they're almost. Yeah, they're almost I guess. As bad yeah. As you and Andre. <laughs> yeah, because we've you know we're still boyfriend girlfriend. It's been ten years, but hmm. at least um, right. now. <laughs> he proposed so uh so now you know we should be getting married um but we then we haven't planned that yet so <laughs> we keep saying when so when are you getting married now that you proposed and they're going mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well you know save yourself the trouble just just have the proposal in the and an engagement party <laughs> and then just uh don't do it. <laughs> you know, the thing is, like, people only get married once. So, like, you never have. Well, actually, that's not true. Some people get married more than once. But <laughs> but the first time you're getting married, you have no experience in planning a wedding. So just like the idea that that you're going to have to plan a wedding and you don't really know anything about planning a wedding. So it, it makes it kind of like, um, I guess, putting it off means at least you're not doing it wrong. Uh, so it's yeah. a little bit a little bit how that kind of happened is you know okay well we have to find somebody to um to do all the you know official paperwork and 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 the vows and everything so yeah we just like i guess we just don't know where to start so we haven't started <laughs> fair enough and honestly it's it's more stressful than planning a, a pan european adventure <laughs> it's very wow. stressful planning a wedding anyway Moving swiftly on. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to touch on it so people know there's something in the book for rash, rationalized getting the book for. If, mm-hmm. they, if they're not into running, <laughs> there's romance. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. There's also a lot of lo- lovely scenery and uh, and drama. I, I, I like and I like to paint a few little historical. I I do sort of. I have this weird thing of I run through places, but obviously I've not spent days and days researching the history of every single place I run through. If I see anything interesting, I photograph it or take notes, and then I'll research it when I get back. So quite a lot of the things I saw, I didn't know what they were. I just thought they were fascinating or interesting. I went back and did some research and discovered things like the grave of the first three American soldiers killed in the First World War in France, and like an ancient Celtic burial mound in in Hungary. Things that I just thought, well, that's weird. I don't know. What's that? I have no time to stop. You know, I have to Mm -hmm. have to run. So yeah, some amazing sculptures Um, as well. It's fun. It's actually, yeah. It's like uh, there's so much, um, so many unpredictable things. You know, little villages where there's been a expo in uh, of wood carving in the previous years. So there's all these amazing wood wood sculptures and stuff. But these things are all really helpful if you're going to have a a multi multi multi-month adventure. Mm-hmm. That that you go through somewhere that's intrinsically interesting. So, you you actually include some of the pictures in the book. You have like two hmm. photo sections, but I imagine that you took like a lot of photos during the oh yes Thousands. multiple months. <laughs> so how did you um, how did you end up deciding which ones you wanted? Well, I presented a big uh, like a big shortlist to the publishers, and I just said, look, I I can't. I can't decide what's interesting. You, you, um, I want these four or five because they are really crucial to the story, like the building of Roxy and so forth. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I just let the I just let the publisher come up with their selection, and I thought they made a good, you know, they did a good job of it because it's not just 
I mean, it'd be really boring if it was, you know, and I had no photographer filming me running for most of it. I ran and took a few shots from the van, but most of the time there are shots of things I saw, see lovely scenery, flora and fauna. I don't have any shot, don't have any shots of feral dog attacks, so I don't have the presence of mind yeah. to get my yeah. camera out. But yeah, there's some there's there's some nice nice memories in there. Lavender fields in Bulgaria. I had no idea that Bulgaria is one of the biggest producers of lavender oil in the world. There you go. Um, and in fact, all of that made for some very readable, very interesting footnotes through the book. Mm. You know, you go, what on earth is this? And there's a little one or two next to it. And then you look <laughs> yeah. at the footnote and you find out what it is because you did the yeah. research afterwards. I've always loved footnotes in books. Um, I don't like them when they're at the end because nobody can be bothered flipping back and mm -hmm. forward. But if they're at the bottom of the page and it's just a little aside, which, you know, would cut, would otherwise disrupt the narrative. So you have the choice of reading them or not, or just flipping through it and then coming back. Um, but I do like a fun little footnote. Um, in terms of the people, some of the people you came across, um, hmm. tell us about uh, Bjorn and Yoka or Joka. Oh yeah, yeah. This was this was in Romania actually when my dad was there. We were there's a road called the 67A Transalpina, which is this really beautiful scenic route. A lot of bikers take this route across the, the Carpathians. I had planned originally to run across the ridge or something, but a local guy in a camping shop said, yeah, you know it's going to be full of snow now and you'll probably die, so don't do that. Um, so that was enough to discourage you? So I thought, yeah, probably, probably don't want to do that. So I, I ran up the road, but it was a beautiful road, really, really scenic, very steep in places and quite near the top. There's a lovely little glade, which seemed to be a natural camping spot. So we parked Roxy in there. And then we noticed there was a, another couple had appeared with a tent. And weirdly enough, four dogs, was it four? No, three dogs. And a sort of weird cart thing, like, like it was like a, a dog sleigh, but with wheels. And it turned out that this was a, um, I think, are they Dutch? I'm getting confused. I think they might be Dutch. Anyway, they, they had um, traveled across, gosh, something like... 17 countries and they, they've been keeping a blog about their ex experiences and they were just they didn't really have a purpose they were just exploring and living in a tent and walking with these dogs and they're just like a fascinating couple who like like me had a sort of weirdly alternative way of living so that was nice yeah just to sort of encounter someone else who's living out of a well in their case a, a tent and a, and a wheeled conveyance they probably still out um, there somewhere onto country number 50 or yeah something well, they might have finally around. had to go back to their to their jobs but <laughs> uh they i think they, they had this interesting job they were they were trainers i think for what do they call them support animals like dogs not dogs for the blind but sort of what they call them emotional support animals or something yeah. like that so they lived with dogs that was their life really um so it was nice to see some dogs that were friendly <laughs> fantastic <laughs> Yeah. And and yeah. the other character that, that struck in my mind was the did you did you term it in the chapter the indi in the in, indefatigable in, indefatigable hacky <laughs> yeah 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 this was quite near the end of the trip we're actually on the outskirts of Istanbul uh, it's all getting very exciting and we found this little funny little place to park that was near this tiny strip of road between two of the bits of the bay of something unpronounceable that I can't possibly say. And we're all these fishermen fish. So we were there overnight. In the morning, this very expensive looking car kind of parks up and it's sitting there with its engine on. 
and I, I immediately thought oh, we're in trouble. That must be the police. We weren't supposed to camp here last night. We're going. We're in trouble. I'm halfway through shaving. I think I shaved half my face. <laughs> and then Aradna says, "There's a guy walking over." Oh, okay. So I come down to meet him, and he turns out to be this incredibly Labrador-like, buoyant, happy-go-lucky character who happens to own a nearby garage, like um, what do you call it, a uh, gas station. And uh, he's inviting. He's suddenly like we tell him what we're doing, and he's really excited. And he's never met. He's trying out his English because he, he really wants to, um, you know, speak more fluent English. And he invites us back to his garage, and we meet his father, who's like eighty or something, and then. Then we <laughs> we end up going out to see a football, a local football team that he's a executive on. He's on the board of this little football team. <laughs> it's quite a character. It's full of energy. He keeps giving us things. He keeps giving us water and stuff. Um, and then we end up going and having dinner with him and his family in this really lovely sort of suburban part of uh, Istanbul by the sea. It's it's really weird because you do come to trust people on an adventure like this, but even. Haki pushed the boundaries of me thinking, you can't be this nice. You can't be this interested you in helping have us. Some what do you want? There must be something. <laughs> There's a sales pitch coming. But no, he's just really friendly, happy-go-lucky guy. We actually met up with him in London a few months later when he came to visit. Yeah, it's just I got a pair of shoes from him, like trainers to wear when I wasn't running, which were really comfortable because he'd only worn them once or something. Oh, wow. Um yeah, so I mean, uh, that was, and that was two days before the end of it. So I was pretty, we actually spent something like the night before the final day of the run. He had a house in town. He was quite wealthy, I think. He had a house in town, a little apartment. And he just said, you can have the spare room, just stay there overnight. So we did, <laughs> which felt weird the next day. So I'm like, I've just spent a, night, a really nice night sleeping on a proper bed. And now, I'm, mm-hmm. uh, now I've got my last 15 miles to run uh, through, the, through the city, which was really busy bustling full of history istanbul's an amazing place uh it's like meeting place of civilizations for thousands of years so it's interesting it seems like it seems like um you know you're not like the first person that has a big long running adventure and meets all kinds Mm. of like interesting fun kind generous like just you know giving people um along the way like you know it seems like anybody that's done any ultras i mean you just think of ultra marathons like 100 milers mm. and uh you know the the crew the crews that end up crewing the runner um you know sometimes it's the they're they're up for i don't know 48 hours mm. straight um taking care of this runner and it's just like i mean how how much more generous of your time and your energy you know can you get and it seems like every like these big adventures almost i don't know if if it's a magnet for for Hmm. good people usually yeah i mean there's very few stories um there is one uh rosie swell pope i don't know if you know about her but she well that must be 20 years ago she ran around the world (laughs) talk about um adventurous thing it took her years but uh she did have one incident where some very threatening men somewhere in siberia i think it was who we're going to drag her into the woods or something, but she managed to escape. But she just tosses this off in a paragraph like it's nothing. Um, but, you know, mostly people gravitate towards you because, they're one, they're, they're sort of baffled and amazed that you're doing this thing. They're just trying to understand it. You're clearly not a threat in any way. Uh, you, know, you don't want anything other than a nice, quiet place to stop and somewhere to wash, really. And um, they're just, you know, they're just interested. And people generally are helpful. 
I have, I'm, it makes you more optimistic, I think, about human nature, especially in these divided times, to meet so many people who just seem to want to help in any way they can. Yeah, Restore your faith in humanity. Maybe we should make everybody, all politicians, go on uh, multi-stage runs before they can qualify to be in charge of government. Yeah, before you get to run the country, you have to run the country. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> that Even sounds like a Canada. great idea. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. So at least our politicians would be very fit. Yeah, I think Justin would probably manage a decent cross-country run, probably. He seems a fit chap. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I I think he is a runner, or he was a runner at least when mm. when he was running for office. That that there's a title there's a title that hasn't been taken yet. You know, every <laughs> almost as you'll know from all reading all these running books, pretty much any running any title. common phrase with running in it has been used. But running for office, but it has to be a politician that writes that that uh, that writes that. Good. Well, I mean, we're, we'd gladly interview them once they write the book. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you hear the podcast and you're a politician, you can take it. <laughs> no rights attached. Yep. Go for it. Are there are there any things that you regret on the on the um, on the adventure? Or is it, maybe you're not that kind of person, but are, are there any things that you wish you'd done more of, or you wish you'd done different? Um, I, I think maybe I would have seen a bit more of the Alps. Um, I did sort of sneak into the Alps because I was getting bored of seeing this beautiful backdrop of mountains while running along these admittedly very pretty alpine meadows. But I, I could have done with doing a bit more um, running in the mountains, uh, but that would probably have finished me. <laughs> like, uh, they were all covered in snow, even in uh, April, you know, a lot of heavy snow up there. So I sort of went through the some of the smaller peaks. Um, did encounter a little bit of snow, but nothing significant. But yeah, it would have been nice to see a bit of that. And maybe to have, just have a few more times to stop in, so that Radna wouldn't have been quite so frustrated or bored at times. Although we did have a great time when we did take our tourist days, we didn't we didn't waste them. Probably choose not to run through the Champagne region when it's shut. <laughs> <laughs> not ideal. Yeah. Well, how did you decide on when to leave? Like, was it uh, so that you'd have enough time at the end to then go visit before winter comes? Or uh, because it seemed like it was pretty cold at the beginning. I mean, you didn't have one day where you were freezing. You had multiple days where you're freezing. And it seemed like the van wasn't really prepared for that. Like it wasn't insulated no. or anything. Well, it was insulated, but there's only so much you can do with a metal box. Really, it's basically a nature's fridge. You know, it's like a, not nature, but yeah, uh, we there wasn't really a very sensible time to do it. But we definitely had to avoid winter. So I thought we'll just we'll just wait till the very beginning of spring. It gives us the maximum amount of time. And obviously, as I'm going further east and south, it's going to get warmer anyway. Or so we thought. But we didn't really plan for there being like a second winter suddenly in the middle of March. It's, there's always good, whatever whatever you do there's going to be problems like if we left it too late we would have hit Istanbul and southern Bulgaria when it was getting really hot and I'm not good with heat so I, I have problems I can run in sub-zero I'm quite happy to do that but I'm really not happy running at 45 degrees or higher um, yeah when it starts when the thermometer starts hitting triple digits I'm like no I'm not I don't want to do this <laughs> Sounds like you're more my kind of runner than Liz's kind of runner. Liz's a hot weather runner. Yeah. Hmm. I acclimatize well to the heat, but not so right. much to the cold. So you got a bad water in your future at some point. <laughs> <laughs> a little way off. It's long, lovely flat roads, you know, long flat roads. 
Oh, is it? Okay. Well, I mean, they're you just know, on I'm fire. Gonna... <laughs> is is that the one where it's so hot that um the like the runners run on the white line of the road yeah, because right. their yeah. shoes are melting? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Heard about that one. It's like 140 degrees or something stupid. You have oh, to wear wow. a white suit, like you wear like you're dressed for you know, being a volcanologist or something, because it's it's just crazy hot. And they, they they have to you have it's like compulsory you have to have support in a van with a certain number of people, and it's 135 miles in the heat of summer in Death Valley. Oh. I mean, it does sound absolutely barking mad, that kind of thing. There's a there is a crazy part of me, and probably quite a lot of, you know, ultra runners, all ultra runners must have this way. The crazier it is, the more you want to do it. How else do you explain like that or the Barkley marathons? That's another. Yeah, that one crazy, is uh... bonkers one. I know when you're pretty much guaranteed you're not going to finish. <laughs> yeah, they have whole years or slates, slates of years where nobody finishes. Yep, yep, and and you have people that come back. We actually have um, we actually have a uh, one of our friends that has done mm. the the mini Barkley or is that what it's called the mini yeah, the Barkley Bar- the Barkley Fall Classic. Yeah, oh, so right. okay. and he's done it more than once at this point. Wow. I think he's got that's, that's almost trivial compared to the Barkley marathons. In fact, most things yeah. are almost trivial compared to. <laughs> yeah, well, it was designed to be an unfinishable race. Mm. Yeah, when he when he came back from there, I mean, he uh, he wore shorts and he just had like his legs looked like uh, they were someone took a machete and just you know decided to draw yeah, kinds like... of lines all over. I mean, they were all scratched up, and I asked him if he thinks he's going to wear pants next time but um he doesn't like pants much no. so <laughs> <laughs> just take the thorns please i'll have the thorns instead of the, the you solve a lot of problems while you were on your your and i guess it's the same with most adventures but certainly ones lasting 112 days that lots of things are going to happen that you can't predict and you don't know mm. and you have to go in sort of open-minded with respect to well, I'm going to expect some things to go wrong. I don't know what they are, and I'll have to deal with them, and I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I will. And I guess you go in like that to begin with, but when reality hits, that must grind you down. Did you did you ever get to a point where you think, well, there's too many issues, here, or were you always of a, of a mind, it's just a question of time and effort, and we'll get through? I'm mostly quite optimistic and or naive about my own ability to survive <laughs> all sorts of things. And Aradna's a natural was a natural problem solver. My dad's probably the one who was most likely to go, no, this is crazy. Why are you doing this? Uh, especially as, you know, if anyone reads my first book, you'll see that there's good reason for that. I won't spoil it, but, you know, I do have a near death, in, a near death experience of that one. Okay. But um, yeah, just, uh, you have to have a, a, an optimistic sort of problem solving mindset. I just think, very little is it's gonna it's hard for things to kill you you know if it, it's hard to be killed in the middle of the wilderness in eastern europe it's not the wilds of siberia it's not like it's not a desert it's not the veldt where there's lots of killer wild animals just a few bears dogs and boars but but generally you know and also you've got a support vehicle and you've got a garmin you know i had all these protective measures in place so the worst that was going to happen was I was going to get lost, I was going to injure myself, or me and Aradna were going to have a massive drop, a massive fight or something. Uh, to a certain extent, all of those things happened, but uh, not really uh, catastrophically at any point. Yeah, you just, uh, there's always, in every maybe not every day, but every few days, there would be like a dark 
not a dark night of the soul, but like a moment where uh, the weakness of will is creeping in. And I just think, I don't want to do this. I'm not enjoying it. And it's just, it's just suffering. And why am I doing this? But then I would remind myself the greater goal. I would think forward to a lovely meal or a shower or something. I say shower, but a bucket bath. Or some some pleasurable, or we were going to meet and walk around a little village together or some something nice is happening in the future. I just have to get there. Uh, and if I have to hobble or, you know, shuffle or, you know, whatever, I'll, I'll definitely get there. That's that's the mindset you have to bear in mind. Yeah, it's voluntary. You know, no one's forcing you to do it. It's not a it's not a punishment. You know, being it's not a forced march across Europe or anything. It's not like at the end of the Second World War when people had to walk home hmm. from far-flung countries. So this is your second adventure book. So um, do you have something else on the horizon that you're that you're looking at? I do have another book which I'm I might self-publish because it's a little bit less sensational because during lockdown, like. Many people, I had to think of how on earth to keep myself busy. So I ended up, and I'd actually, typical timing, given up a job. And, okay, I won't say any more than that, but basically I found myself at a loose end and I thought, I've got to do something. So I just thought, I can't leave the country. There's no travel. So I'm just going to try and, I'm just going to drive around Britain and Roxy and I'm going to go on these, all these little runs and I'm going to try new things and make a game out of running. So I did everything. I hadn't done a 5K park run. Park run's a big phenomenon over here. I don't know if you have it over there. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Thousands of people every every Saturday do these runs. And I'm not a morning person and not a short distance runner. I thought I'm going to try it anyway. So I did a park run in the rain and it was really good fun. Uh, and I did a 100 mile race, which is like my third of those. And that was intense. And then I did some weird things like running between every London underground station on one particular line. And trying to write the word hope using Strava, you know, on my phone. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. I've seen people do that. That yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. I tried to draw it. It sort of worked. Um, so I had all these little mini adventures. So this third book is just a series of these little mini adventures. Quite funny in places also. As you, you know, it's me. I get lost. The van breaks down. Um, all sorts of things happen. But it's not a big epic you know, so it's rather so much than be one big adventure, it's like a whole series of little adventure chapters. Yeah, like fifth, and I turned fifty, and it's like fifty adventures in my fiftieth year. When okay. my birthday was basically me talking to friends over Zoom. That was what a lot of us had to do to yeah. celebrate things. So yeah, and it's it's about coping with lockdown and emotional problems and all sorts okay. of things. So that that's coming out. But then also, um, I do, I I have a I have a distant dream that. Um, I don't know if you know, but recently, the um, in the last few years, hikers managed to join up all the bits on the Patagonian Trail, Great Patagonian Trail or something. So it's basically, there is now theoretically a walking trail down most of the west coast of uh, South and Central America. But that's okay. that's a big, 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 that's about, it must be about 5,000 miles or something. So this is like ends, through, through the Andes. Yeah, yeah. And... The problem is, you know, some of the countries may or may not be experiencing a conflict. There might be drug gangs. There might be extremes of altitude and weather. And there will definitely be vast amounts of wilderness. So if I ever get a chance to do that, that's going to be the the most extreme. And I would do that self-supported with a tent because I'm stupid. <laughs> Why not? Sounds like your kind of adventure. It does. Yeah. So that's something like that I'd like to do. 
And um, I don't know if you want to if you want to say a few things about your your last book, because, uh, um, you know, it seems like it might be a bit of a, a similar type adventure, although probably a little more tame. Um, that's kind of well, the, the, the one I'm just about to publish, oh, it's going to be called uh, Just for the Hell of It, 50 Running Adventures from 5K to 100 Miles. And um, I think I'm going to bring that out in the autumn. Um, I'm currently getting some very nice, very helpful fellow running writers to read it and hopefully write nice things for the spine it's all marketing you know you have to do this um that yeah uh, look out for that but um i'll it'll be splashed all over social media no doubt i noticed you're running the orient book had a little word from paul tonkinson on the front of it yes you had him on your show i he was yeah he's um i hope to run with him actually i meant to run with him for this book as a way of saying thanks i wanted to be on the, their podcast um but he was injured so i ended up running with um rob deering i don't know if you've got him planned to come but he's really he's really great guy as well and he's written a book called running tracks so running tracks and 26.2 miles yeah. to happiness those are the last two running books i read actually and they're both very different but they're both great fun um so yeah i was i was on the running commentary podcast and that's that's a great podcast because it's like doing this but running mm-hmm. at the same time yeah, we've listened to it. I also ran, got to run with Sean Conway. I don't know if you're aware of him. He's not so much of a runner as a general purpose adventurer, but uh, he did a crazy thing. He he's he's done. I think he's the only person to do a length of Britain, sort of length of Britain triathlon. In that, he's cycled the length of the country, which is like it's no big deal. It's a thousand miles, did it in about six days or something, and then he's run it. Um, and he also, but here's the big thing: he swam it. So he swam up the west coast of Britain around all these little fiddly bits of Scotland and the Hebrides. Oh and my goodness. Took him months and months. He was sick, stung by jellyfish, nearly wow. hit by tanker ships. Oh, it's, it's a great book. Uh, I'm going to recommend someone else's book, but Hell in High Water. It's not a running book, but it's, it's, that is a great book. So he very kindly wrote a little crit um, for both of my books. Uh, very sporting, um, nice chap. So... There is a kind of little community of these of people who do these crazy running, crazy running and physical adventures that I'm sort of discovering slowly. It's not just me. The weird thing is, it's like herding cats because everyone's like off doing in, weirdly individualistic, yeah. and everyone's mm-hmm. off, yeah, as you say, doing crazy things. Yeah, and and if you're off for like five months, I, and you know, then when the person comes back after their adventure, well, you're off somewhere for five yeah. months. <laughs> <laughs> Try, trying to coincide as a challenge, yeah. But I, I deliberate when I, I made a point of meeting Sean Conway because he'd been so helpful and inspiring. He was doing this thing running 15 marathons in 15 days, in one in each of the national parks in Britain. So I joined him on his 13th. thought, he'll be nice and tired by then. He won't be running very fast. <laughs> and there was about 20 of us actually joined him. And we all formed this little friendly unit running through Wales, a beautiful part of Wales. But typically for me, uh, I managed to turn up 15 minutes late, having got lost in Roxy. So I had to find them, find them first of all. So I'm running around the countryside trying to find everyone else. Uh, and then at the end, I, I thought, because I ended up running six miles less than everyone else, because I t- I had to find a mountain where they'd run over it and then join them there. I had to do another six miles. And then I got lost again. So yeah, there's a, there's a continual theme of getting lost <laughs> and then unlost in most of my work. But getting lost is fun. That's what you have to understand. Getting lost is part of the pleasure of adventure. If you don't get lost, you're not doing it right. <laughs> uh, one of the one of the pleasures that that I have doing these podcasts with with you you kind of guys 
is the things that come up in conversation like we were saying to you oh how about talking to us on saturday and you're saying oh no 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 i'm running up and down snowden as many times as i can in 24 hours uh, yeah. i remember trying to contact nick butter to talk to him about his book about uh, running the world he said oh i can't talk to you i'm running around the perimeter of britain at the moment you know <laughs> like as you do who are yeah. these people <laughs> You know, they don't know. say, they don't say, oh, I've got to go and see my aunt or, uh, mm -mm. you know, I've got dinner with my wife or something. Mm. No, no, no. But I, I have to say, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm minorly compared to these people. I, I have a normal life and normal constraints most of the time. I just, every few years, mm. I have to do something bonkers. And every, maybe once or twice a year, I have to do a crazy long race as well, just because why not? So if people want to follow you, Gavin, uh, where's the best place that they can sort of check your your exploits yeah i'm on twitter i've got two twitter accounts for some strange reason though one of them the running one is um it's actually called at long underscore run underscore film but just put long run film and you'll find it because that was going to be the name of the film which will eventually come out to accompany my first adventure uh and then i've got a website which is just gavinboiter.com where i put all my books and various other projects those are the and there's an instagram account I think that's just Gavin.Boiter. But yeah, you'll find me on social media and boring people with stories of misadventure. And for people who want to get copies of the book, um, is there anywhere in particular you, you'd like to direct them? I'd love to say it was published in Canada and America, but actually you'd probably have to get it off Amazon or Barnes & Noble or some, one of those other sites. Mm. Uh, uh, don't know whether it's in any bookshops as an import. It might be, but you could you could try asking your local bookshop and support them independent bookshop that'll give them something to think about or if there are any american publishers you know their rights are probably still available <laughs> should you, you go. want to do an american Get in touch edition. with gavin and he's just given his mm -hmm. contact information <laughs> yeah but yeah it's on amazon so yeah yeah do you want to stay for our summaries yeah so we should yeah why not let's do it he's like okay fine i guess so as long as they don't hate it <laughs> no it's been great talking to you about this Yes, I'll, I'll, give, I'll, I'll, I'll give my rundown first, little little synopsis. Well, it's a vivid story, I said earlier, told in such rich detail you couldn't help to be, but be there with Gavin uh, on his journey. Um, all the photos were brilliant. So, you know, you hear about these weird people that you've met and there's a photo of them and they're huge dogs and Roxy and there's the construction of Roxy and then you can imagine being there. So that, that I think makes, you know, the story just much more, more vivid. The regular pages that occur throughout the books, which are tips for multi-day runners. I, I did sort of think, does he really think that we all do this sort of thing and we need tips to, you know, oh yeah, when I do my run across the, the whole of Europe or across the whole of America, I'll need to read these tips. Um, but you, I mean, you do say multi-day runners and I guess there are lots of those. That was fun. And there were um, good, good advice, general advice in there for, for anybody who does a lot of running. Also, what I found fascinating at the end was the, the kit lists. So what, what you take with you, all the things that you, how you've equipped Roxy or Van, what you've got in there. It's no small undertaking. You've got to think, do a lot of thinking through and around the problem. And I guess your original adventure of running um, ac across down the length of Britain, you actually did a juggle, didn't you? So yes, down. So you're going from the north to the south. Probably got you into a mindset to get well equipped for the big adventure across the Orient Express. The problem solving that you did for all the unexpected issues that arose was 
nothing less than impressive. And I think I concluded that Aradna is a formidable woman. I did notice that when you and your dad were on your own and you had a problem, your one of your early reactions was to phone Aradna, who was back in the UK, but to phone, oh, hello, dear, we've got a bit of a problem. I can imagine the conversation. <laughs> I think, you know, personally, I would have dissolved into a hysterical mess by the first week um, when the unexpected snowstorms arrived. But, you know, you just problem solved your way through it. Um, the book is a fantastic travelogue across eight countries and a huge adventure book all rolled into one. And, and and there's a certain English connection that I have as well, which uh, I appreciated. Uh, it just made it, you know, extra special for me. So a great read. So um, I guess I'll echo that, that it was a great read. Uh, Gavin is a good storyteller and is able to paint a picture of the landscapes and the experiences so that the reader feels like they're almost there. Um, there are two sections of color photos, which which I thought were fantastic. Um, I liked seeing, uh, you know, Roxy in the early stages of the van build. And, um, you know, I was also kind of curious to to see what uh, what Aradna looked like and, you know, what Gavin looks like, even though, you know, Gavin, you can um, go see his picture on social media. But uh, it was nice to have it in the book. And uh, the book tries to tell an accurate account of what it's like to live in a van with your significant other for several months uh, while running almost every day. And it doesn't just tell the positive. It really tries to tell a realistic story of the experience. Um, so it's not painted with rose-colored glasses or anything like that. Gavin explains how they were constantly, uh, you know, looking for somewhere to get fuel or water, uh, taking bucket baths, uh, uh, washing all their clothes, um, which also meant washing almost every day. Uh, he also explains there that even the best relationships can become strained when, you know, both people are tired or feel underappreciated. Um, so anyone that is into ultra running has dreamed of van life, um, which uh, you're right, there are a lot of people that dream of van life because my partner Andre, he watches a lot of van life, uh, van build YouTube videos. So um, I feel like he's he falls into that camp or just likes to hear about people's travel experiences. I think all those people would probably like this book. And I was uh, particularly impressed that Gavin didn't get himself thrown into Turkish prison when he wandered onto a military base. And I'm impressed by the number of times that he got lost in the woods or a field and still managed to find Aradna and Roxy at the end of the day. I think he probably has some good, uh, good uh, either communication or navigation skills to, uh, to make that happen. Uh, so overall, a great, uh, a really good read. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers, Gavin. We'll look forward to your next book and uh, we wish you success running up and down Snowden in, the, in your near future. Thanks. <laughs> if Roxy doesn't let me down and strand me somewhere in Wales, which could happen. <laughs> well, it seems like so far so good. I mean, you know, yep. she's still going Fingers strong. Crossed. Yep, absolutely. So thank you for listening to another episode of Running Book Reviews. Big thanks to Gavin for providing us with copies of the book and for spending a lot of time with us today. If you'd like to lead us, leave us some feedback of how we can improve the podcast or want to suggest a book that you'd like us to review in a future episode, please leave us a comment on social media. We are Running Book Reviews on Facebook and Instagram, and on Twitter we are Reviews underscore Running. Please also follow us on social media for, to find
find out about new episodes as they're released, or you can just subscribe to the podcast on your favorite streaming platform. Oh, we are also on Buy Me A Coffee. I'm almost forgetting to mention that. If you'd like to help us cover our expenses, just show your appreciation. You can find us by going to the general Buy Me A Coffee website and searching the creators list for running book reviews. That's all from us for now. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.